Jesus once said in John 16, 33, I'm going to read this quote from the NASB. The things that I've spoken to you, these things I've spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Take courage. I have overcome the word courage there in the New Testament and there in John 16 is the Greek word tharseo. What that word means is to be firm or resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. So, you know, in this life, followers of Christ are to be courageous because Jesus has commanded it, number one, but not because your salvation depends upon it. Your salvation does not depend upon it. We depend upon wholly the work of Christ. But rather, we're to be courageous because Jesus has overcome sin, death, and the devil. Therefore, what could a mere man do to you? What could a mere human do to you if that's the reality? See, we know that tribulation and danger and adversity and pain and suffering are a given in this life, and that is according to Jesus, not according to just experience. We know that from Christ himself. So how are we to behave? We're to behave according to our Savior, courageous, firm, and resolute, being steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil is not in vain in the Lord. And our courage in this adversarial world is grounded in something. It is grounded in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. It is not grounded in your inner strength that you never knew you had. That's Disney theology. It is not grounded in our community of supportive people. It's not grounded in our honed talents and skills, and that will enable us to be courageous. No, it's in Christ alone that our courage is grounded. Now, this is essential to understand as we begin to read, as we've already and the, the courage of Esther and of Mordecai. And it's for two reasons that we needed to know that before we get into this passage. Number one being so that we don't lionize humans as the standard. Esther and Mordecai are humans, and they certainly show courage. Standard. Jesus is the standard, and he's the ground of it all. So we need to know that going in. But secondly... We need to know that going in, those words of Christ in John 16, 33, because we need to not be fooled. We need to not think that what happened to Esther and Mordecai cannot happen to us. It can, and it is happening. See, chapter five in the book of Esther, this contains the greatest displays of courage in the whole book. Everything else builds up to this, these moments, these two, Esther and Mordecai, and then flows from them. So both Esther and Mordecai are going to act, as we've already read, with Christ-like courage, firm and resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. Lives are at risk for both of them, and they are epitomizing the words of the Apostle Paul, to, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. So that either way, whatever you do to the Apostle Paul, he wins. Either I become more like Christ and I welcome and desire that, or I go see Christ and I welcome and desire that. There's an old um, 
old American Baptist society. I'm talking like 1800s era. And they had this logo made up. And in the logo, uh, it was a picture of a bull, a plow, an old plow that you get behind and strap to a bull, and then an altar, like an Old Testament looking altar. And then underneath it, it would say, ready for either. It was taken from a, an old Spurgeon sermon uh, that this Baptist society, mission society got this idea. The image being that as the bull, these missionaries thinking like this, you can hook me up to the plow and I'll plow straight rows until I drop. Or if Lord, if your plan for me is to get up on that altar and be consumed in the flames for your glory, I'll do that. I'm ready for either. That was the logo that they had out. And Esther and Mordecai, we saw now, and we'll get into more, that they are ready to either be harnessed up and plow straight rows, or they are also ready to be placed on the altar and consumed in the flames for the glory of God, either one. And either way, courage is requisite, meaning it is required, and it will cost them their all, either one. There's no option that you don't give your all to the God who saved you, either one. So we look at verses one through four at Esther's big moment. On the third day, Esther put her royal robes on and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. Now hearing it read out loud, do you hear the redundancies in there? King, palace, throne, king, palace, throne. You're supposed to see a shift. We're going into somewhere really special. This is a big deal. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? Have you noticed that before now in the first four chapters of the book, she's almost never called queen? It's just Esther who became queen, or she was the queen, but now it's Queen Esther. That's her title now. We're supposed to see that here in the throne room. Uh, he says, Up to half my kingdom is to be given to you. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast I have prepared for the king. So Esther's moment is that she comes and she stands. So three days of the fast are up. As we left it last time, fasting for three days, that's over. Now it's game day. What does she do? She goes in and puts on her uniform and her royal robes. Now, what has God put her in a place to be? She's the only one who has the royal robes. Nobody else has royal robes. It's only her. So she goes and puts on this, this marker of the providence of God of placing her where she is. She didn't earn it. She didn't clamor for it. She got yanked out of her house, brought into the palace, and now she's playing the role that God has placed her in. She's acting faithful in the fullness of that role. And then she stands. We see that Esther stood. That's what it says. That's all she can do. She can't waltz in there into the throne room. We talked about that last week. She can't do that. She can't call out to him, king, my love. She, she can't do that. She has to just stand there and wait to be seen. So look, listen, think about the context of this. Remember, the king has not asked or wanted to see her, talk to her, or hear from her in 30 days. And now it's three days after that even, so 33 days doesn't care about her wants, doesn't care about her needs. She doesn't know if he wants her as queen anymore. I mean, will he toss her out just like he did Vashti? I mean, it's been five years. They had a pretty good run. Has she lost favor 
in his sight? Did she displease him in some way? Imagine the mental turmoil of Esther, of, of even just, you know, Mordecai commanding her to do it, her submitting and doing that, and then the getting ready, getting prepared, walking to the spot, all of that mental turmoil. Let me ask you this, wives, have you ever been mystified or troubled by your husband's silence? I mean, imagine this, let's just say you had a great week, great week, date night last week, or this, you know, the other day, but then today he comes home from work, doesn't say a word. What are you thinking? You're not, here's what, maybe you don't think, you don't think, I bet he just had a hard day. No, you think, I did something horrible. He's gonna die. He just got a cancer. He's, he's gonna do all these things. One day, you had a great week. One day, he didn't talk to you, and you're freaking out. Maybe that just happens in my house. Maybe that's just not you know, everywhere. Silence is, is uh, painful, though, for particularly for wives. Your mind is racing until supper, but imagine 33 days of that, and your husband's not a godly man who had a bad day. Your, your, your husband is a pagan warlord who has shown high degrees of instability, emotionally and politically. Imagine that kind of turmoil. She has no means available to her to re-earn or refresh his affections in any way. She can't kind of butter him up to ask then for a favor. There's no warm-up. There's no investigation. Hey, honey, what's kind of been going on the past month? No recon. She either lives or dies right now. That's it. And in her mind, as far as she knows, it's a 50-50 chance. He might, but he might not. His love might have gone cold, or he might have been busy, or bored, or just being very selfish. I don't know. No idea. But then what does it say? She won favor. She obtained favor. Why? The king didn't want anything to do with her for 33 days. She didn't bake him his favorite cake. She didn't send a love letter ahead of her. All she did was stand outside the room in eyeshot. That's all she did. Why did she obtain favor? Because God ordained her to. He extends the golden scepter and she places her hand on it. Now, do you see the imagery there? I mean, why record that in such detail? I mean, besides like makes a good cinematic he has to extend the scepter out. So he's holding it somewhere in the middle because Esther grabs the top, right? Now, Esther has the top like a gear shift. Do you see the imagery here that this peasant, poor Jewish woman is now on top and ruling over the king who thinks that he has all of this power. But that's the symbol of her being accepted, though, by the king, that she's allowed to come in. He doesn't suspect her of any kind of assassination plot uh, or anything like that. But he also knows the same rules that Esther conveyed to Mordecai. Anybody who comes in without being called, they could just be killed right there. So in his mind, he's thinking, this must be a pretty big deal if she's willing to risk this because I know I haven't wanted to talk to her for 33 days. So he's curious, and suddenly he's generous. <laughs> Half the empire. Now, don't read that and think that he's serious about that. That's just a, uh, a, uh, a kingly kind of exaggeration, hyperbole. I, I, I really, really approve of you, and I'd love to give you something great because of how much I approve of you. You obviously have a request, otherwise you wouldn't have come. So why is he this generous? 
hasn't even wanted to speak for her for over a month, the answer to the why is providence of God. We see God working in all things, though his name never appears in the book, but he works all things and all people according to his plan. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's just a hose. He can put the water wherever he wants. And he grants her request. Instead of pleading, though, right there, think about this. She doesn't plead right there in the throne room. Now, in, uh, when you look at historical accounts, the picture of the Persian emperor in his throne, he always has big axemen behind him. Because if he doesn't approve of that person, you just cut their head off right there. And Johnny on the spot's ready to go right then. So she doesn't ask for it right there, surrounded by all these guards. She's going to change locations. Here's my request. And he's going to anticipate that that's not really what she wants, but I understand what she's after. It's kind of a reverse of the normal strategy. Normally, when you want something from somebody, you do the nice thing for them and for their buddies before you ask. But she's doing it in the reverse because that's the providence of God. So she's going to have... Uh, a, a party for her husband, a feast for her husband, and his number two guy, Haman, who gets the invite in reverse, before, or, or after, rather, uh, that she knows that she wants something. She's gonna display her gentle and squat, quiet spirit at the feast after he already knows that she has a request. So then the scene moves to the banquet itself in chapter five, verse five. And the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as, they were drink, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So now he doubles down on this big elaborate offering. And now he, he can't take that back without losing face. So this is again, just building into the plan of God. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, gentle and quiet spirit there, let the king and Haman come to a feast that I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king had said. So she holds this banquet. The king and Haman hop to it. They get there and they jump right into Esther's prepared feast. Notice the feast was already prepared. Esther's really living out that image. I'm ready for the plow or the altar. If I perish, I perish. Isn't that what she said? But if I don't perish, I'm gonna continue plowing straight rows. And that means having the feast already prepared. And so the wish is extended. And the wish comes after the feast and they're drinking wine. Do you remember the last time there was a feast and the king is now drinking a lot of wine? What does he do? Vashti, come parade around like a doll on display. It's a dangerous spot to be if you're the queen. Didn't go well for the last one. Nevertheless, Esther continues and the request is given. He doesn't act boorish. He says up to half my kingdom. Why so lavish? What's the occasion? Why keep throwing this out there that you have to back up? Because he's a fool. That's why. Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. We're supposed to see that about the king. Men get in power who are not competent all the time. And it's God's will. Now, the second banquet is the request. 
Esther asks for another banquet. Banquet. She's honoring a dishonorable husband. And, and you kind of think around and commentators go back and forth on whether or not, was this a moment where she's like, uh, let's just do another one tomorrow. Instead of asking right here, just didn't have the, the strength for it. I don't necessarily follow that line of thinking, but I know that God is providentially organizing it because there has to be a second one because the Haman-Mordecai stuff has to happen in between. So no matter what Esther's motivation is, God is ordaining her desire to have a second banquet at all. And she just keeps winning over favor with the king without a word, just her actions and just her spirit. And instead of complaining about him neglecting her or making her worry, I thought you hated me. Why weren't you talking to me for a month? She just is serving him. Not a biblical wife living that life, faithfulness to God and a marriage to a fool. And then we get to Mordecai. So Esther has her, her brave scene, her, her, her scary moments over. She knows now the king has favor for her and is going to grant her a big wish. Mordecai continues in verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Imagine this guy. He comes out of the party, probably intoxicated, just on cloud nine, I'm, I've not only been granted this genocidal wish, I'm at the top of the kingdom. The queen wants me and nobody else in her private feast with her and her husband. I am the invited third wheel. That's how powerful I am. He's pumped. He doesn't really even know Esther, probably, if the king's not talking to her. Haman's certainly not talking to her. But she personally invites him. And the only guy that's a bigger shot in the empire than him is the king himself. Now, this is what you call in Texas drinking your own Kool-Aid. And he's full of it. Proverbs 26, 12 describes him. Do you see a man who is wise or great in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Haman is also a fool. But what does he see when he comes out of the door? So they're in the palace area. We know that. We also know Mordecai works in the palace area. He's some kind of official in the government. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, remember that's not like an actual gate that you go in and out of. It's an area where the, the uh, pro-councils and officials are stationed. When he saw him there, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Mordecai walks out of that banquet full of his own Kool-Aid to immediately be confronted by the only man in the empire who's never taken a sip of it. Mordecai. And this time Mordecai sits down because how, whatever the scenario was that, that uh, we saw previously, Haman marching through the town and everybody bows down, that's standing up. Now everybody's probably seated and they stand up to respect Haman and Mordecai sits in his chair. Won't stand up and won't tremble. He's not afraid. Doesn't budge. And think about where Mordecai is at this moment. Continually remember the context. There is a planned genocide on the empirical calendar that Mordecai caused on human level by not submitting or paying homage to Haman. That's what's happened. That's the reality. And he still 
won't do it. Instead of backtracking, he doubles down. The heat is on. His people are going to be hunted like deer in a season, a 24-hour hunting season on a people group, his people group, and yet he won't give in. In the midst of the raging tempest, Mordecai stands firm. So we often equate courage with forward progress. It's not necessarily wrong. We, we, we almost exclusively equate courage with that. Some kind of noble aggression, forward progress, moving, pressing. But biblically, courage is most often pictured not by moving forward, but by standing firm. That's why we had Paul read from Ephesians 6, not only about the days being evil, but about those commands. Look at verses 10 and 11 in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord. You can see courageous there. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to do what? Stand, not attack, stand against the schemes of the devil. And look at verses 13 and 14. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be with able, able to withstand, meaning endure, stand through in the evil day. Having done all, you've done everything. And what does it say? To stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore. Repeated over and over and over again. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be immovable steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord, immovable, not be aggressively moving, but don't move, steadfast. Having done all in Ephesians 6, we stand. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, steadfast and immovable. See, when we're looking for motivation in the Christ-like life, an appeal to aggressive, offensive imagery. And not offensive in meaning that, it, that it's offending you, but offense in more an athletic sense or a military sense, moving forward. Move the ball down the field, charge and take the hill. That's the kind of things that we do. Now, we also know that there is in the New Testament imagery of fighting, right? Fight the good fight, the imagery of a soldier. Um, but that's often most in context of duty, of, of uh, faithfulness, of alertness, of being aware that you're in a fight, that there's an attack happening. But we must not forsake in the Christian life and motivation for the Christian life and thinking through it, the concept of standing firm. Don't underestimate the strength that it takes to stand. Who are the biggest guys on the football field? Who are the 350 pounders, the offensive linemen? And what's their one job? Don't move. That's, those are the biggest and strongest guys because that's the hardest job. Don't move. When they come and hit you with all their force and their running start, you don't move. What was Mordecai's heroism seen in? Not bowing to Haman. His heroism is not seen in attacking Haman or, or ground swell of a coup, a campaign against him or, or lashing out with condemnatory words. What did he do? He just didn't move. He was unwavering. And we, and we sometimes fail to see the strength of that in our own lives when we're called to it. The best way I could think to illustrate that 
was years ago, did, was doing college ministry at Texas A&M, and there was a guy who was an engineer, a civil engineer. His name was William Williams. Thanks, Mom and Dad. His name was William Williams. Great guy. He's a civil engineer that, was, that was, had this contract with, uh, with Texas A&M, so they would use A&M's facilities and an engineering school and all that, but they would do a lot of work for the Texas Department of Transportation. His job particularly was overpasses, so the bridges, but his team specifically did the pillars that hold up those bridges. So one time he brought to our Bible study with all these college guys uh, some of the research that they had been doing that they were trying to figure out the strength that this pillar could hold. And so they don't just do it on uh, AutoCAD and draw it all up and get it on the computer and the specs. You have to test it. And A&M has, there's out on the, the west side of the campus, they have this defunct um, airport. So you have this tarmacs that are everywhere to, to do this kind of stuff. And so then how do you test the strength of a pillar that's gonna go over a highway? Well, you got to slam an 18-wheeler into it. And that's the video that he brought to Bible study. Imagine all the guys there. They were all so excited. We're going to see this happen. And it was the high, it was, this was years ago, but it was the highest definition I'd ever seen. The slowest slow-mo I'd ever seen. Whatever frames per second that is. I don't know anything about cameras, but it was crystal clear and super slow to watch an 18-wheeler driven by a remote at 60 miles an hour slam into this concrete post. It was like watching a child slowly push hot butter across a plate into a knife that's sticking up. I mean, that, it, it was, it, the 18-wheeler looked like Play-Doh. It had a full trailer behind it with weight in it, slammed into it. And he said they had to do it again because they didn't hit it directly the way they wanted to. So then, all, of course, all the college guys were like, when is that? And they went out and watched it live. Uh, but that, then you look at that and you think of the strength. Where's the strength in that video, in that reality? The post, the picture. That 18 wheeler is huge and it's moving at 60 miles an hour, but the post didn't even wobble. It didn't move. And when the 18 wheeler is shredded and looks just like this mangled mass of recyclable metal, the post barely has a scratch on it. And Esther, are living, that's the life that is pictured in Christ. Think about Christ's own life, that if he doesn't live, then he can't be the perfect sacrifice for us. Is it most often seen in acts of intentional, noble aggression? We really only have two of those, right? The two scenes beginning and ends of his ministry of going into the temple and cleansing it, flipping over the tables. Same action twice. Everything else, what is it? Jesus just doesn't move. I mean, if they think about when he gets arrested, what happens? He doesn't move in the garden. He speaks and what happens? The entire 6,000 men army falls to the ground and he doesn't move. He lets them get all back up and then they take him to the court and then he gets hit and beat and charged and he just doesn't move. When Pilate says recant, he says, no. He just doesn't move. Are you really this? You have said it. He just doesn't move all the way to the cross. And Esther and Mordecai are embodying that by the grace of God. So we see Haman be enraged. And of course he is. Satan can't stand to not be worshiped. His mood is immediately crushed by one man's stand. One guy who silently, depending upon the circumstances, either sits down or stands up, whatever nobody else is doing. That's it. 
that guy sends the number two guy in the empire into a rage. The frailty of the pagan whose idol is his own power and fame. That's what you see. Anyone who takes that away, that will incur the wrath of that individual. Make no mistake, whatever God an individual worships, that God will have its sacrifice. That God will have its worship. More, and Haman's God is fame and power, and it will have worship. Haman will see to it that it will have worship, to get the offering that it demands. So he melts down. And you're supposed to see a pathetic, pathetic individual in verses 10 through 14. So nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Big, brave man, didn't cry in front of everybody. Didn't let it leak out in front of everybody. He held it tight, then went home, and he calls all his friends, and he calls his wife, and he flops on the bed and tells them how bad his life is. Verse 11, but before he tells them how bad it is, he tells them how great it is. Recounted them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me. Come with the king to the feast she had prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet, all this is worth nothing to me. Wow, I'd like to be one of his sons. Worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Also, his wife doesn't even get mentioned in the list of all the great things that he has. She's less than nothing because all the cool stuff is worth nothing. Haman's pitiful fit, he puts on a brave face, doesn't cry in public. Why? Because he worships self-image. That's his God. And he can't contribute to the non-worship of himself. He's a narcissist. So when he gets home, the meltdown begins. I'm rich. I have lots of sons. I have all these promotions and I've been honored by the queen, but I don't care because of one guy. One guy. Just rings of Proverbs 30. 15 through 16, the leech has two daughters, give and give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, meaning the land of the dead because everybody keeps going there. The barren womb, the land never satisfied with water and the fire that never says enough. Haman is just not satisfied. Can't overlook one guy, but shouldn't he be satisfied? Doesn't he have what everybody else wants? Wealth, big family, and the sons are not only family, but it's a status symbol, it's power, and it's that, that gods love me more than they love you. I have all these sons. He has notoriety, and he has job security. Aren't those the same things that everybody spends their whole life chasing, and that everybody says, if I have those, then I'll be good? I won't want anything else. Well, then Haman just proved all of those people a liar. He has it. Also, you could read the book of Ecclesiastes if you want a longer version of what Haman just had and said in this hissy fit that he's throwing. Because he doesn't have one man's adoration. It's all garbage. And don't forget, he already has the green light on a specific day to murder that man and everybody he's related to. That's a law that's going to happen at the end of the year. But he still can't deal with it. Just the pathetic reality of a godless heart. 
Not every unbeliever is as evil as Haman outwardly. We know that. But every unbeliever, including ourselves before we were saved, is that pathetic inwardly. So were you and so was I before Christ. The heart of the toddler throwing a fit in Walmart does not leave when you grow up. You just throw better fits more sophisticatedly and not over toys, but over boats or promotions or whatever else it is that you worship. That heart doesn't go away. It just looks a little more sophisticated. But then his wife, Zeresh, has this wonderfully wicked idea. Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. You got so much favor with the king, so much pull. Just say, hey, I built these gallows. Why don't we just hang Mordecai on them real quick? King will let you do it because he loves you. Then you can go joyfully to the feast of the king. That's kind of the opposite of Christ-like joy, but that's what the plan is. Haman likes it. He's going with it. Now, how is it? We don't have time to dig into this, but how is it that 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 pathetic, snively men get into power and they always have really controlling, manipulative, wicked wives. Think of Ahab and Jezebel when you hear that. We don't have time, but go home and read 1 Kings 21. Ahab wants this guy's vineyard because it's really nice. His name's Naboth. Naboth says, nah, that's okay. <laughs> Ahab goes home, cries, lays in the bed, faces the wall, refuses to eat, and then his wife Jezebel says, aren't you the king? Get up and eat some food. Give me your signet ring. I'll write the letter and get this guy killed and get you your vineyard. Okay, thank you, sweetie. <laughs> That's what happens. That's the story. Go read it. First Kings 21. Zeresh is just Jezebel 2.0. That's all she is. She just said, get the king's permission to kill him. Now, the gallows here... Uh, Again, commentators and historians go back and forth. This is a, traditionally what we think of, like in the Wild West, the gallows, the rope hanging off of it. Could be that. But the preferred method of public execution for the Persians is impalement. So this is a 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet. That's seven stories to impale this guy on. So Haman's uh, got little man syndrome. And he's going to express it by saying, look how big these gallows are. That's how strong I am. And I'm going to stick Mordecai on it. So he hears these soothing words from a wicked woman to a fool of a man. And Proverbs 26, 22 comes to mind. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. And most absurdly, he already has permission to kill Mordecai. He already has it. He's just so pathetic and weak, he wants to do it now. But what he doesn't know, as all of part of God's plan, is that he's digging his own grave. He's building his own executioner's axe. Again, we think of Psalm 7, 14 through 16. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and he falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on, upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. See, we'll see that play out in chapters 6 and 7. But what we need to do for application is this, is consider the spirit of Haman in our day. See, the spirit of Haman was not extinguished in 473 B.C. It still lives large in amongst an hour day in 2022 A.D. It's just the heart of depravity. The depraved heart demands celebration and approval from everyone for everything that's wicked and sinful that it does. 
It wasn't enough for Mordecai to tolerate Haman's wickedness. He never acted towards Haman. He was just passively resisting, alone. He would either have to, Mordecai that is, he didn't have to celebrate it or he'd be eliminated. See, that heart remains in all depraved people everywhere today and in every day and in every place because it's just Romans 1.32. Though they, unbelievers, generally, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, the long list that Paul just went through of all these sins, ranging from murder to disobedient to parents, they who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give, the NASB says, hearty approval to those who practice them. Hearty approval. It wasn't enough for Haman to live and let live. He can't do that. Mordecai was not allowed to love the sinner and hate the sin. That was not an option for him. <laughs> Haman was his sin. That was his identity. To not affirm Haman's sinfulness was to deny his identity. Therefore, Haman received Mordecai's abstention from bowing as violence against his person. That's what he received it as. To not affirm Haman's sinfulness was to deny his identity. Haman received that as violence. And so it had to be met with violence. So now Mordecai is gonna be forced to support to bow and to celebrate Haman or he will be eliminated. He has to give hearty approval or die. Does that sound familiar today? Is there a group or a movement demanding celebration or face elimination today? The moral revolution in our day and in our context shouts this from every screen that we have. You will celebrate sexual immorality and deviance of every kind, or you will be eliminated for your bigotry. Toleration is not enough. It was never going to be enough because what is toleration? You are wrong and I don't like you, but I'm not gonna bother you. That's toleration. That's unacceptable. And it was never gonna be enough, though it was the mantra for a while. You're not allowed to disapprove or label it wrong. That's what toleration is. See, the plan of moral revolutionaries always works like this, no matter what it is. Ours is sexual currently in this day, but whatever the moral revolution is in any day has fourfold steps. First, we gotta get people to sympathize. Well, I just, I didn't choose to be this way. I just am this way. It's so hard because it's not, you know, it's not the normal status quo. And wow, oh, man, I, yeah, it's kind of hard. I get that. Sympathize and then move it to normalize. And in our day, what did you do? Just put one or two characters in a TV show, make them funny and very unoffensive. So now you normal, ah, that's not that bad. That seems kind of normal-ish. But then it never stays there. Because then the next step is to demonize anyone who doesn't agree. Sympathize, normalize, demonize. And then the last step is now criminalize. If you don't go with it, then now that is a hate crime. Are we living in the demonized and criminalized era? Absolutely, we are. Aren't Christians now being forced to give hearty approval of such deprivation and sin? Or you're gonna face legal action all the way to the Supreme Court? Do we know, do, do you know what's happening before the Supreme Court right now? 
State of Colorado, again, they, they did the cake guy twice. Now they're after a web designer. A web designer. She won't design for this sexual aberration website. And so now she's going all the way to the Supreme Court saying, you will voice your support for us. You will celebrate this. Otherwise, we're going to sue you into oblivion. And what does that whole court case come down? Whether it's the cake shop, whether it's the photographer for weddings, the florist, or the web designer, or whatever's next, which is that there's going to be a next. Whatever it is, is we are going to make you say it. It's not enough for like, you say it over there and I'm not going to attack you or harm you or, or do anything negative towards you. No, no, we're coming to you and you have to say it. That's what that is. You have to type that on your keys for the website that we want you to design. You have to say it. But do you realize this, that in a public school run by the American government, you can't legally force a kid to say the Pledge of Allegiance? But you can force this woman to type on her keys her approval of this aberrant sexual lifestyle? We live in demonize and criminalize. Make no mistake, avoidance is not an option. Look at Haman's life, Haman or Mordecai's life. Haman is walking down your street. You don't have an option. He, this is your town where you live. You will either bow or not. We used to be able to say, well, I'll just keep it over there. Keep it in San Francisco or LA or, or, or keep it in Chicago and New York, but it's here. You, the avoidance is not an option. You will be on record for bowing or not bowing. There is no third option. There is no possibility of neutrality. Will you bow or will you stand? And if you will stand, then your only hope for strength and courage is to turn to Christ. Christ, who never bowed the knee to Pilate, to Caiaphas, to the legion of of demons, to Satan himself. Never bowed the knee. He just stood and he, remember, John 16, has overcome the world for you. And he has already pronounced sentence on the world as it is. From Isaiah 50, 20 through 23, woe. Woe is not, ah, it's really sad. Woe is pronouncement of judgment. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. That's from the mouth of God. Woe. And he's not saying, that's not good. He's saying, I will act towards that. See, the courage to stand for us now is the need of the hour because we know the one who rules it all. And we see beautiful imagery in the book of Esther. Esther comes and she just stands in the hallway. I stood in lots of hallways in lots of places. But the significance of this moment, the simplicity of the action was to stand in courage and obedience to God. Esther, who had been living a lie for five years, not worshiping in any way that anybody could ever see her do that. Now she stands and shows who she really serves. Same for Mordecai. Whether it's bowing in the street or everybody rising up at the king's gate, he won't do it. He will stand. 
knowing who God is. Because what did he say last week? Deliverance will come. It will rise from some other place because God will keep his word. So we stand now firm and resolute in the face of those threats, knowing the finished work of Christ on our behalf and the future glory that awaits us. Listen to the future glory. We don't think about heaven enough. Revelation 21, 22. And I saw no temple in the city, the heavenly city, that Bunyan calls the celestial city, heaven itself. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, meaning Christ. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, meaning whatever glory they had is subsumed under the kingship of Christ. And its gates will never be shut by day, meaning because there's, there's no threat there. And there will be no night there. Again, the threat of night. They will bring into, the, into it the glory and honor of the nations, all subsumed under Christ. But nothing unclean, meaning nothing evil, will ever enter into it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, what else could you want? What else is there? And, and while we wait for that day, we confidently hold forth the gospel that saved us to everybody who hates us. That's what we do. That's all we do. Because the Lord Jesus is still saving wretched sinners. Just like he saved us as wretched sinners. Hear the beauty of this text. This is the ultimate bad news and good news text that you can find so densely packed in the New Testament. First Corinthians 6, Paul says in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You should hear that and go, who are they? Who are the unrighteous? I don't want to be that. I want to inherit the kingdom of God. I want to be in the kingdom. Well, who are they? Well, here's who they are. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you read that and you go, but that's me. I'm not going to get in. But is there hope in verse 11? Yes, there is. And such were some of you. You Christians, you used to be a drunkard and a reviler and a homosexual. You used to be immoral and a deceiver and a swindler, but you're not. Why? What does it say? Because you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified by whose name? The Lord Jesus Christ. And by whose power? The spirit of our God. Titus 3, 5, the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Such were some of you. And notice it doesn't say, and here's how you participated with it to make it happen. He just did it. So that happened to you. It can happen to anybody. So we extend that. We, Christ and his gospel, they are our courage and our hope in a day where we are hated and we are forced to have to stand just like they were for Esther and Mordecai. So may we go forth boldly, standing firm on the gospel, offering it to everyone who will listen. Father in heaven, 
We ask for that boldness. We are ashamed so frequently when a moment comes for us to share the gospel with someone, the greatest news that they could ever hear, the greatest thing that's ever happened to us. And because we've been so indoctrinated and catechized by the culture, we get cowardice and we don't share. Well, we've all been there. And we do ask for your forgiveness. But we also ask for your boldness that we might continue on, not in an angry rage, but in a firm stand, arms extended with the gospel handed out, but immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's where we admit that we need help. All of our our most ready examples of courage are aggression and and fighting and looking at every uh, opposer as the true enemy. Lord, we need help to acknowledge that those who hate us in flesh and blood are not our enemies, that they are our mission field. They are ruled by our enemy, but we don't see him. And that's what the war is really about. So, Lord, as they lash out and as the, <coughs> the screws get tightened on us, give us courage that is grounded and rooted in the finished work of Christ. Give us the courage that Esther and Mordecai were examples of in their day. But give us the courage to be able to say, as Christ did from the cross, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. We so often can't get to that part. Let us release wrath and avenging and getting even. Let us release that to you. You've told us to do that in Romans 12 and elsewhere. Let's turn that over to you. Let us be faithful, faithful with the gospel, faithful to never move one inch off of the Bible, faithful to be discipled and to disciple others to be poured into by godly or older brothers and sisters and to pour into younger brothers and sisters that we might all stand as one unit, but also faithful to extend the gospel. And though it may cost us, you've told us that it will already, but you've also told us that while we're guaranteed to have trouble in this world, that we can take courage because you've overcome it. It's already done. Lord, please write that on our hearts and brand that in our minds. We ask for that. And we're, we admit our weakness and our easy, easy forgetfulness. Give us strong remembrance and give us confidence in the gospel and give us shoulder-to-shoulder brotherhood and sisterhood in our little church here. Lord, we thank you for this word and we thank you for the examples of Esther and Mordecai and we thank, for, we thank you for what they point us to, which is your son, and his indefeatable, undefeatable work on the cross on our behalf. That's in his name we pray. Amen.